Welcome to the Electrician's Co-op. I'm your host, Rob Bruss, and I'm flying solo on the podcast today, so no Jamie. As you know, here on the podcast, we're more than just business. From time to time, we have a different kind of guest that will help you with mindset and in the process, help you to gain alignment with your higher self and move you closer to the goals that you've set. Today on the show, we have Brett Murray from the Safe Heart Foundation. Brett has had his own TV show. He's been an advisor to the New South Wales government, won a boxing title, been an Ironman finisher several times, and he's an all-round inspirational kind of guy. These days, Brett works closely with men to help them build courage, character, and conviction. And who doesn't want some more of that? Let's get started. Brett Murray, welcome to the Electricians Co-op. How are you, mate? I'm well, Rob. Thank you for having me. It's been it's an honour. No worries at all. I'm looking forward to doing this one. Uh, this is a, a little bit kind of left of centre for these tradies listening to this show, and, and I'm looking forward to sharing a little bit of your story and how you work with men to help them build courage, conviction, and some more character as well. And you need that in every aspect of your life, particularly when you're building a business, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. Mate, and so... Being a tradie myself in the spray painting field, that's yep. my way background. Yeah. And I know what the how the trade fields work as well. So happy to add value any way I can to the guys listening. Good stuff. Well, let's get a bit of that background and find out some more about you. That's where it started, right? You were shaping surfboards and living the dream on the South Coast and then finally put your big boy pants on and got your trade, right? Tell us about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, the, the, the story behind the charity is that I was chronically bullied at school and uh, left school at year 10 back back in the day. You know, um, if, if you didn't really know uh, what you wanted to do, you just sort of kept going through year 11 and 12. Then you went to uni and sort of found out, or you could go and get a trade. So I tra- chose to leave at year 10 and get a trade. Well, I thought I was going to get a trade, but I uh, found myself um, sort of bumming around from job to job for the first six months. I was 16 years old and then I landed the dream job spraying and develop and designing surfboards in the south coast of New South Wales. So I moved out of home at the age of 16, worked through that for the next two years. Then the recession that we had to have in 91 hit and uh, I found myself needing work. So I landed a job. I started actually on my birthday, my 18th birthday as a spray painting tradesman uh, or apprentice, worked through that, uh, was in that field for 12 years all up, worked through to become a spray painting teacher, working with youth, and then, um, you know, dabbled, you know, dabbled into politics in the 2003 state election, obviously did not win, but um, yeah, learned a lot through that, and then uh, found myself totally unemployed you know, with a wife and three kids at that stage, and uh, had, to, had to find a job, so I started speaking in schools. Uh, very quickly, that became speaking about my bullying story. Like when I say quickly, the first two or three months. Uh, by the end of that year, 2003, I'd run the first ever anti-bully camps, taking bullies away and doing basically boot camps with some of my commando mates, uh, ex-commando mates. And so we put them through boot camps, but not tearing them down, but building them up and building up the self-esteem of the bullies mm. because, um, you know, most bullies, the reason why they do what they do is because they're low self-esteem and poor self-worth. And so we were um, quickly got a lot of accolades, a lot of media. Then I took a bunch of Muslim boys from Punchbowl Boys High across the Kokoda track with Channel 7 in 2004, and it just it just took off. Um, I've written uh, several books and, um, you know, had the TV series, as you alluded to, along the way. Uh, 
really threw myself into sport, became a state champion in boxing as a bit of a, uh, a self lesson to prove to myself that I had <laughs> what it takes to be a man and, you know, handle myself. And, you know, uh, you know, I did Ironman recently, well, the last sort of, um, sort of eight years, uh, did Ironman, uh, stopped doing that four, five years ago now. And, um, yeah, all of the culmination of all of that life experience has, uh, as a charity led us to understand that men are influencers in society, in the family, in business, in community, men are major influencers for good or for evil. So, uh, we've decided as a charity to really start focusing on working with men over the last two years. And we're, uh, yeah, really happy to see the progress that we're making. Men are becoming better fathers, better husbands. We've seen marriages repaired that were on the brink of destruction. We've seen, uh, father children relationships, um, mended. We've seen businesses start to thrive. Um, yeah, it's just, it's been amazing. So, um, yeah, that's a very brief chronological overview of the backstory of, of myself. Well, there's a lot in there. That's, that's for sure. And, you know, I can't agree with you more that men are the leaders of the community. And I know the electricians co-op here, there's plenty of women uh, that are sparkies out there. There's plenty of girls in that, but predominantly trades are dominated by men. And that's why I kind of wanted to bring you on here today. I'm not sure of the exact percentage. No one can tell me. No one will put their finger on it and say how many female sparkies there are or how many female tradies there are in Australia, actually. No one seems to really know. All the industry bodies are all kind of airy-fairy about all of that stuff. But anyway, I, I think... I know one. Oh, you know Jordan one? Peterson, Jordan Peterson knows the stat. Only 2% of bricklayers in Australia are women. Yeah, it's low, isn't it, right? Not, not a lot of chicks want to be brickies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the only one I know. Yeah, fair enough, too. Fair enough. No, look, I, I think one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on here today is because you talk about leadership a lot and you talk about leadership from the male perspective and the girls listening to this will get just as much out of this as the boys listening. So if you're a woman listening to this, please don't, don't click away and don't turn this off because you get a little bit of a window into our world, which I'm sure you see plenty all day, every day working on construction sites with other sparkies anyhow. But look, I wanted to, I wanted to touch on and start off on by asking you about leadership in the workplace because most men who are running a small business and operating a small business, they're, they're committed, they're dedicated to their craft, they're dedicated to serving their customers and doing the best job that they can. But often when we get home, all of that kind of gets falls by the wayside a little bit because work takes up you know, 12, 13, 14 hours of our day sometimes and you get home and you forget that you're also the leader of the family and you're also there to lead your kids and be part of that as well. But that can be neglected a little bit, right? Yeah. So, so unfortunately us guys, you know, we're, we're wired psychologically uh, to be problem solvers. So that's why we, we throw ourselves into our work. And when we get home, unfortunately our families get the leftovers mm. and we can be exhausted. We can be stressed. We can be fatigued. And I think what men need to do is, dig a little deeper because you, you've always got more in the tank than what you think. And I mean, I learned that across Kokoda when I did Kokoda, you know, after the first day or two, uh, I was really fit at the time. I was spent yeah. uh, because I had to carry the logistics of everything. And I thought I'm going to, I literally after the first day, actually I'd forgotten to drink. Uh, so I drank like 600 mils of water in 12 hours, which is just stupid in that kind of humidity. And we'd gone through, you know, the, um, Goldie River, we'd gone over the Imeter Ridge and we had another seven hours to go and it's dark. I had to do a piece to camera and after I did the piece to camera, I literally collapsed and started vomiting and in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm literally going to die here on the track and it's the first day. Yeah. But just with encouragement in the right environment, I was able to push on for the next seven hours 
get some sleep, get some chow, rehydrate, and then the next day pushed on and, and it was another five days before we made the end. And, mm. and here I am, you know, I made it. We're, you know, doing Ironman, you, you hit the wall so many times. And uh, one of my friends said that an Ironman is the longest conversation you'll ever have with yourself. <laughs> you're out there, if you're just an, an age group athlete like me, you're out there for, you know, 9, 10, 12 hours talking to yourself. You're not allowed to have earphones. You're not allowed, you know, you've got the crowd sometimes chanting you on, but you've got to talk yourself through hitting that wall. And so many times we come home from work and we just feel stuffed. We feel like, oh man, I just need to have a shower put my feet up. I don't want to deal with stuff like that, but that's where we've got to be able to dig deep because the greatest asset we have is our family. Yeah. So many guys I have personally met where they've made a mozza, but then their wife's just walked out of them and the the classic man comment didn't see that coming. Yeah. And, and they wonder, well, I've been doing all this for my wife and kids and they don't appreciate it. See kids, and women spell love T-I-M-E and we need to invest that time even though we're exhausted we've just got to give them that little bit more because the return on investment is a life of return on investment if you know what I mean like it it just keeps repaying over over a long period of time and you will get to the stage hopefully that your business is, is going so well that you're working on it not in it and then all the time that you've invested in your family, you can enjoy with them still being there. How many guys do we know who are so disconnected from their kids? They, they haven't had time to go to their sports or their performances or, uh, you know, or all of those things that kids are involved in because they're working to put a roof over the head. But, you know, what use is it when the roof is there, but it's an empty house and no one wants to be around you. So it's, it's, it's hard. No one's saying it's easy but it is possible and it's, it's about prioritizing time. And I suppose when you are engaged with your wife, with your kids or for the ladies with your husband and your kids, be attentive, be present, mm. be right there. And, you know, and sometimes if you're tired, say, Hey guys, look, I'm really smashed, but I'll, I'll give you everything I've got. And just, just articulating that, you know, using words, letting them know, Hey, I'm, I am smashed because they're not mind readers. They might think, Hey, that's home. It's time to wrestle. And you've just had a really hard day where you've had to, you know, dig some trenches to lay some cable or whatever. And the laborers weren't there or something wasn't, and you, you've had to, you know, Mm. be the guy on the tools where you're normally not, it's a little bit more fatiguing. You come home smashed. They don't know that. They don't know what your day has been like. So if you simply just kindly go, hey, guys, I've had a really heavy day. Let me just shower and I'm all yours. Just that, then you're, you're showing value to your family. You're showing that you value them and you're giving them the opportunity to understand where, where you are. And then they go, oh, okay, we know dad's tired, but we'll, we'll give him a bit of time to rest. But they still got that expectation. They want you there. Yeah. And uh, they want the conversation because that's what family's all about. Family is a, is a, a micro community. And it's conversation, it's, you know, it's interaction, it's reciprocation. It's not just, oh, you do your thing, I'll do mine. And you're right, we said our vows, I told you I loved you. Well, that should be enough. It's it's got to be a consistent investment over time. And what you invest in grows and what you feed thrives, what you starve dies. Yeah, it's beautiful, beautiful sentiment. And as you're saying that, I, I couldn't help but think that, hey, I'm that guy that neglected my family a little bit. You know, when I... In 2002, when I left the army, I was faced with a choice. 
and I loved my army career and I wasn't ready to get out but I had small children at the time my my second son had just been born who's just turned 18 just now um, so it's way back when but I, I remember it like it was yesterday and the reason I remember it is because I went to work one day and one of the guys that was supposed to rotate in and take over a posting in the school that I was working at the parachute school had been killed in Afghanistan and uh, it was a very sombering sombering sort of moment i knew the guy i didn't know him well i knew him pretty well he was my parachute instructor on my basic course i knew who he was i knew his reputation all this sort of stuff um and and we were sort of excited to have him here and he was excited to be coming to the uh to the school to rotate in to have a little bit of break from being on operations and being in sas all the time all that stuff and uh, i remember going home and telling my missus at the time hey this is what's happened she asked me what's wrong and i told her what happened and she said oh man that's that's heavy stuff and as my time uh, at the parachute school there was kind of drawing to a conclusion, you sort of rotate around postings around two or three years. And I knew I was faced with a choice. I was going to go back to the battalion or I could go for an SF spot. I could try out for special forces or I could um, get out. They were the real three options that I had. And the army is really good with career progression like that. I had an excellent experience. I had great leadership, had great people around me saying, hey, you know, you can change this job, go here, do this, like this. So it was a really good opportunity. And I went home and my missus said to me, man, you know, if you go back to the battalion, you're going to get deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan and go and get your head blown off. What about these kids? You know, what are, you, what are you going to do? And I resented that for a long time. I resented her putting that on me for a long time because I felt like I had to choose between my career, which I loved dearly and I was not ready to leave, and little kids. But it was a reality. And the reality is she didn't do anything wrong. All she did was ask me a question. And yeah. it was the way that I interpreted that question. Anyway, if I fast forward in that story a little bit, and I had my first business. Within a couple of months, we had about 20 staff. It was booming. It was doing really, really well. One day I came home and she said, I'm leaving. I said, where are you going? And she goes, I'm leaving. I said, where? Where, where are you going to? And she goes, I'm going to my mother's. I said, all right, I'll see you in a couple of days. And she said, no, no, I'm leaving. Leave, I'm leaving you. And I was like, well, what are you talking about leaving me? And she was, this was, this was a little while, it was probably a year in, uh, and she was saying to me that you're never here. You're gone for 16, 17 hours of the day. You're always at work. You're always doing this. And I'm like, well, I'm not out there having an affair and I'm not running around the scrub in Afghanistan shooting Taliban. You know, come on, I'm here every day. What's the matter? You know, I'm here with the kids every day. But little did I know that's not what she wanted, right? She didn't want me to just to be there every day. She didn't want me just to show up and say, hi, honey, how are you? Give her a kiss, good morning and a kiss, good night. There was more to it that she wanted. There's more that she needed. Relationships take work. and. You know, I'm the quintessential example of not really knowing what I was doing in business. That was the first thing. And the second thing, not really understanding how that affected my home life, which was actually um, pretty bad. And in the end, that relationship broke down and I lost my marriage. And, you know, as a result, I was divorced and um, my kids my kids grew up in a, in a broken home. And look, there's nothing wrong with that. Plenty of kids grow up in a, in a broken home, but it would have been better if we'd stuck together and worked through it. But, you know, you, you're talking about being able to give when you come home, you got to dig a little bit deeper and give a little bit more. And if I had to set some boundaries, that wouldn't have happened to me. And I wanted to bring you on here today, partly to share that story a little bit, because I know there's some lessons to be learnt in that story. And I know that you have some great wisdom and great comments around stuff like that as well. Yeah, well, mate, I'm not too dissimilar. Five years ago, my marriage was quite literally on the rocks because, yeah. um, you know, we went through the the... the Achievements that I've been able to achieve, which is, you know, humbling to think far out. I've been you know, a kid who was bullied at school, has been able to do all this stuff. Um, but at the same time, 
because of my own personal insecurities as a man, I always wanted to try and prove myself. So not having an electrician business, but having a charity that I started and being this guy who's uh, for 11, I think it was 11 years, I was the resident youth expert on Sunrise. So every sort of three or four months, I'd be called up and be on Sunrise and giving youth advice and mm. advisor to the New South Wales government and five times nominee for Australian of the Year and all this sort of stuff I started to believe. And then when I actually got into triathlon, there was stuff in my life that I hadn't personally dealt with that I was ashamed of, that I couldn't fix and, and I just had hidden away. And so what I, and this is what men try and do. So the, the ladies who are listening, uh, here's an insight into how men think and guys listening, I know you're going to resonate with this, whether it's personally or whether it's in business or whether it's just a simple task, a job. If we feel like we can't fix it, there's a feeling of a uh, sense of guilt. Like, mm. oh, man, I, I, well, first there's failure, can't fix it whatever it is and usually more this is more applicable personally and psychologically and emotionally so if you feel like you can't fix something or you're broken in an area or you're falling short in an area you feel you know like a failure with the failure came comes a feeling of guilt with guilt then comes shame and with shame particularly with men comes isolation Mm. and that's where we put on the brave front we go "I'm, i'm good i got this no worries yeah and we don't let anyone in and we think that that's the brave, strong, courageous thing to do, which is actually the weakest thing to do because you're, you're actually running from your problem. Yeah. The strongest, most courageous thing to do is to put your hand up and go, I need help. And what I did to isolate was I got into triathlon. Now, under the guise of raising awareness for our charity, <laughs> I was the only anti-bully triathlete in the world. I actually went on to win my age group in, in a um, half Ironman over in Rottnest Island, like, and I was training 20, 30 hours a day, but I was also traveling all over Australia and New Zealand, speaking in schools. I was away probably five months of the year in total. And so I'd come home from a trip and I'd see the kids and I'd be involved in their sport and stuff like that. Uh, I was really investing in my kids, but I was neglecting my wife. And whenever she asked me to do something like you, I'd resent her because I think, you know, I've got to train. If I don't train, I can't compete. And then I've got to go into this school. I've got to speak at this conference and other, you know, just back off, give me some time. Like, Mm. it wasn't. And so when all the crap came out five years ago and she realized there was lots of areas that I was broken that I don't need to share here, but um, she found out and found out I was living like a duplicitous life, or, you know, addictions and stuff like that. She just went, I don't even know you get out. You're a liar. I don't want you. And 2016, my marriage was gone. Mm. And, and it was through me then asking for help. And, and, and one thing you would know this as a military man is being prepared to lay down your life. One thing I just said to my wife I will die to me. Whatever I want is gone. What do you want? Mm. And I'll prove it to you. Sold all my triathlon stuff, retired from triathlon and, and sacrificed for her. And it might, some people might go, well, that's bloody stupid. Like, you know, what about your life? Well, my life is my family first and foremost. We hear that from so many people. Oh, I'll do anything for my family. Will you? Mm. You really, you know, will you die to what you want and Put there. I mean, here's a simple thing. Your wife wants uh, Chinese for dinner and you're hanging for pizza. And if you go, but I really want pizza for dinner and your wife and the kids want Chinese, if, if that's a struggle for you to go, oh, all right, okay, we'll have Chinese and you've got an attitude about it, then you're not prepared to die. Mm-hmm. 
a simple thing. You're not prepared to die to what you want for a meal. Yeah. How, how much are you prepared to die for, you know, she wants to go to a certain place for a holiday or she would like you to take her out for a date night once a, once a month, let alone once a week, and you're too tired to do that? Well, can, can we see there's this thing called selfishness and us guys can be very selfish and we hide behind excuses and uh, we got a saying that we share with everyone we speak to excuses are like armpits. Everybody's got a couple. They both stink. Yeah. You know, we, we've got to get away from, and, and the funny thing is uh, someone very close to me, a family member actually is going through a split right now. And, and he said to me, Oh, you know, she needs to change. I've changed so much. And I said, yeah, but even though you've changed so much, she still wants you to get out of the house. She still wants to leave you as is. Mm. And, oh, but she needs to change. And, and I just said to him the best way to help your wife change is you change lead by example yeah. if you're prepared to do whatever it takes watch her flourish and it's funny because the things that i used to think oh my wife needs to change in all these areas and i'm you know i was using that as the excuse for me not to change when i just went arms out wide i've got nothing i surrender and i'm gonna do life for you and for the kids i'm gonna change everything i'm gonna get rid of these addictions I'm going to do, I'm going to do counseling. I'm going to get mentors in my life or hold me accountable. 2017 worst year of my life. Like it was hell. Mm. It was the most productive year of my, my life. And now five years later, I've got a marriage to, uh, you know, it, it's not a, it's not a redeemed marriage or a new marriage. It's a brand new marriage to the same woman. Yeah. And it's it's amazing, and it's like it took me. You know, we've been married oh, twenty seven years this year, and it took me do the math twenty two years to figure this crap out. That most of the problems were my fault. <laughs> yeah, you know? and and you know what? The changes that I always wanted to see in my wife for those twenty two years mm. have all happened in the last five. Yeah, it's beautiful. Okay. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, and yeah. it's like, hey, who's reaping the rewards here? I am. Yeah, you are. Yeah, absolutely. I, w- I want to share with the audience um, one thing that I learned from Jocko Willick, which is a really cool thing. And Jocko Willick, in case you don't know, he's an ex Navy SEAL. He has his own podcast. He's a pretty famous dude in the US. And if you haven't heard that before, I'll put the link in the show notes for you so you can check it out. And a lot of what I've uh, done in my podcasting career over the last couple of years has been inspired by him, because what he does is he shares his background and he shares where he comes from and all of that sort of stuff. So he wrote this book, and the first book that he wrote is called Extreme Ownership. And it's all about taking ownership of what it is that goes wrong in your life, and you take ownership of those things. And he wrote another book to to complement that called The Dichotomy of Leadership, which is you can go too far with extreme ownership, and you can go too far in anything in life, and that's the dichotomy of it, right? So you don't want to own every single thing, if, especially if you didn't do it wrong. But in that book, he, he has three really good rules, which the, the SEALs use when they're on the battlefield. And as an infantry guy, it's, it's very similar, same, same, but not quite the same. It's a bit American. It's not quite uh, Aussie, like infantry guys use different sorts of tactics and different sorts of language, but it's the same thing. So he has three rules for, for combat, and it's really three rules for life. And he says, the first thing you need is a simple plan. Because yeah. no plan survives the first shot. And no, it's the Mike Tyson thing, right? Everyone's got a plan until you get punched in the mouth. And yeah. it's true, right? So you need a simple plan and everybody needs to understand that simple plan. You need to prioritize and execute. So when the first shot rings out or you do get clocked for some reason in life, for whatever reason, then you know exactly what the priorities are and how to execute on them. And the third one is you need to cover and move. 
And mm. you never ever, despite what Hollywood might uh, let you think and you're led to believe, there's rarely a spy out there by themselves taking on the world and stealing the nuclear codes like Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible. That's not real. In the military, you're always with other people. And when you move forward, somebody's covering you. And then it's their turn to move forward and you're covering them. So it's a really good metaphor for life as well. And what you're talking about by not trying to do things by yourself. You always put your hand up and ask for a little bit of help. And if you haven't got that help, you go and find that help. So you need a simple plan, prioritize and execute and cover and move. And those three things for me, when I learned them years ago, I sort of, I thought about that and I thought that's how I operate my life. I never have complicated plans. The goals that I have are dead simple because if the goals are too complicated, then it's just too hard to get there. So, and, and with simplicity comes clarity. And when you have clarity, you know what the priorities are. So you know how to execute on them. And, you know, from an, from an hourly basis in my day, I know exactly what I need to do because my calendar is jam-packed from the time I wake up to the time I go to bed at every hour of every day is scheduled. And that might seem like a bit of overkill for some people, but that really helps me get to gain alignment with my goals, my goal settings and where I'm moving towards. It's good stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's basic disciplines. And I suppose, um, you know, no man is an island unto himself. We hear that all the time. You, you, you simply can't do life together. We know the acronym for team is together, everyone achieves more. Yeah. Uh, the other one is a rising tide lifts all ships. Uh, you know, we as human beings are built for community and, um, you know, we, we need each other. And I think with guys, particularly Aussie blokes, mm. we find ourselves isolated you could be in the middle of a crowd but you're isolated you're alone Uh, why is male suicide the number one killer of men in australia Mm. men don't talk in australia men don't open up men think they've got to have this hard rough tough exterior and there's nothing wrong with strength there's nothing wrong with courage there's nothing wrong with being tough as in being able to tough through things, you know, having those calloused hands from working hard. There's nothing wrong with that. But emotionally, it takes guts and courage and strength to put your hand up and say, I need help. Mm. There's nothing wrong with saying, why do you think we have a national day called Are You OK Day? And it's targeted at men. Mm. Why is Movember moved from um, men's prostate cancer to now men's mental health? Uh, We've got a whole month dedicated this stuff because as a society we've realized that men need help and you know there's nothing wrong with saying to your mates you know what i'm struggling in business i'm struggling this covid stuff has really hit me hard i don't have the strategy i don't have the answers there's nothing wrong with that Mm. and together we can achieve more and you providing this podcast for electricians so that they can connect and they can get this kind of advice is so vital because we do need each other. And the more successful we are, the, the the more we can inspire others to be successful. I think one thing that we need to address in Australia, and I'm as patriotic as you, you know, I've got the Aussie flag tattooed on mm-hmm. my arm. You know, you've got it up the back there. But, uh, you know, I, I love my nation, but a thing that I despise about Australian culture is the tall poppy syndrome. If someone's successful, we despise them. Um, you know, we see someone driving down the road in a sports car. I know I've mentioned this to you before, and our immediate response is drug dealer. You know, it's it's not like, hey, there's a guy who's worked his butt off and done really well. Whereas in America, we, you know, the Americans get inspired by others' success. I'm talking, you know, in the corporate world. So I think we need to be there for each other, inspire each other, encourage each other, and and make encouragement our national 
our lexicon, our natural natural, uh, language. And if we can encourage each other, then you know there's uh, people that if they're going to encourage you, then you can go to them for help. Yeah, it's good stuff. Cover and move, cover and move. I love that. You know, that's that's fantastic. A mate of mine is a former SF guy, uh, Jamie Zimmerman, who wrote a book called The Promise. Um, He taught me that. He said that's how that's how we we move in the military. It's cover and move. It's none of this. I watched a movie yesterday, and I was saying to my son, "It's Tears of the Sun" with uh, Bruce Willis and their SF team, and they've gone in to rescue these people, and they're under attack, and they just stand up, bolt upright, and they move in one line. The enemy, I'm like, that would never happen. Like as if you're not going to just, you know, you know, every second guy goes up and then cover and move and cover and move, and like I know the way they move militarily, and I'm like, that would never happen. It's so unbelievable, but that's the image that the media portrays we just got to stand up and just be ready to take the shots and keep walking it's like that's suicide and if you do that in business you just no I'm on my own I'm just going to plough through eventually the the shots are going to wear you down and the first casualties will be your family yeah absolutely so ladies and gentlemen once again a simple plan prioritise and execute cover and move Well, Brett, before I get you to tell us a little bit about Safeheart and the foundation and the work that you do with men, I just wanted to talk a little bit and riff on a little bit about identity because you mentioned before that you took a bunch of kids from Belmore High up to the Kokoda track and that's a hell of an achievement for anybody to do, right? But you're taking these these kids who... I guess for the for the from the wrong side of the street, there's a whole lot of carry on. There's a whole lot of bad things going on in their lives. They're a bunch of rat bags. They're bullies. All sorts of things. What sort of identity problems did they have? Because they don't. They, they, these poor guys from this place in in Belmore. If you don't know where that is, that's like the the kind of the heart of Western Sydney in some ways, isn't it? I mean, I grew up just around the corner in uh, in Bass Hill, which is like two suburbs away from there. So I'm a Bankstown boy as well. And and I, and I know kind of know what this is is like. You know, there's a bunch of there's a big Lebanese community there, and you know they come from immigrant families where the parents are from Lebanon here in Australia, and then they're supposed, they're brought up as Australians, but they're Lebanese, and their identity is stuck there. And and I think you know that aside, wherever you're from, it doesn't matter. I think men associate their identity with their profession a lot. And I think that that's a a bit of a mistake. I made that mistake in the military. You don't define yourself by who you are as a person or who you want to be or who you want to become. You're defining yourself by your damn job title. And that can be a real problem. That can be a problem for, for men. And it's a problem for women as well, but especially for men. And if you let that manifest into something and you identify your personal, your personality by being a soldier or being a football player or being or whatever, and that's taken away from you, you'll have a really, really rough time. And I'd just be interested to hear the, the experience that you had with those boys in Kokoda and identity and how that how that played out for them. Yeah, yeah. So it was it was actually Punchbowl Boys High, which is just around the corner from Belmore. Sorry, uh-huh. right next door. Yeah, no, mate, no, you're right. Um, but yeah, so uh, these boys, at, at the time, Punchbowl High, it was October the 3rd, 2003. If anyone's interested in researching, look at the Daily Telegraph. October the 3rd, 2003. The Daily Telegraph had an article, I think it was front page, and it was how a school became a war zone. And they were talking about this school where knives and guns were prevalent, um, uh, had a 98% or 97% 
uh, Lebanese Muslim population in the school, all boys. Then they had a very small percentage of uh, South Pacific Islander and Asian, and there was one Caucasian kid in the entire school. <laughs> and um, and so I just was frustrated. And to be honest, I had a bit of a racist kind of attitude towards and I've said this on national TV, my initial thought was typical dumb libs. Hmm. Let's be honest. I'm just being transparent. So I ran out to school and said, I'll teach them a lesson. I'll take them to a real war zone. I'll take them to the Kokoda track because my grandfather fought on the Kokoda track. And I was showing what a real war zone is. And the school went, yes. And I'm like, oh, okay. Whoops. <laughs> and then I had to figure out how to pull it off. Yeah. And Simple plans. I had no plan. Mm. And long story short, we got sponsorship. We got Channel 7 involved. And I uh, put it to the kids. We're in the school by uh, late October. <clears throat> we had an assembly. Now, get this. At the assembly, because Channel 7 were there, the school asked the police to arrive mm. to just be there in the hall. We had police in the hall so the kids wouldn't attack anyone. Like, this is 2003. Crazy. Crazy stuff. Uh, 18 years ago. So I get up there and I just said, look, guys, I'm, I'm going to give you a challenge. I'm going to take 10 of you. So only those who want to come can come. you got to ask your parents and all that. So I'm going to take you to Helen back and I'm going to teach you all about our heritage here in Australia mm. because we don't want to deny your heritage of coming from Lebanon. We don't want to deny your uh, religious heritage of being Muslim, but we want you to also own the heritage that you have here as Australians. Long story short, we got the 10 kids and um, Mark Tutin, the only Caucasian kid, he came and it was all by choice. We went on the, the first week of March 2004. Uh, the story in that alone is just insane um, and I'm writing a book about it at the moment. But um, we, we went across and I found out that every one of these kids that identified themselves as Lebanese Muslim were all born in Bankstown Hospital. I was born in Bankstown Hospital. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm talking to these kids and I'm like, you're Aussie. Mm. Why do you call yourself Lab? You're Aussie. And they, they, over the period of going across the track and listening to the stories of the diggers and listening to the heritage that they are now custodians of, they would, the guys would say, well, look, no one in Australia accepts us. Like they, they call us all the names under the sun mm. that I even said before. But when we go home to visit our relatives in Lebanon, they call us dumb Aussies. We don't belong there either. Mm. So we don't have a sense of belonging or identity. So we just hang out together and the media call us gangs. So we, you want to, have, want to call us gangs? We'll act like a gang. Yeah. And so because they didn't have this identity themselves, that they acted according to how people describe them. When we got to Kokoda, there was a kid by the name of Muhammad El Assad. He was a brat. And he was like, you know, before we started the Kokoda, there's there's actually footage of him going, man, I'm going to smash Kokoda, bro. I'm going to smash all the Sukashi, you know. And he's thinking he's going to smash it. And the first night, the kids were crying in their tents yeah. for their mum. So funny. We get to Kokoda. Now, this is a kid who said on national TV, before I went across the Kokoda track, if you had have handed me an Aussie flag, I would have spat on your face and spat on the flag. Mm. I had an Aussie flag in my backpack. So as we crossed into Kokoda and the villagers come to greet us, I pull the flag out and Muhammad races past and tears it out of my hand and he's running around the village going, Aussie, 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 oi, oi, oi. <laughs> and it was just amazing the transformation. He learned the price and the sacrifice his diggers 
paid for him to have the life he now enjoys. So when the guys got back, we did another interview with them and we said to them, how do you feel about Australia now? And they said, we are so proud uh, of, um, you know, what our diggers have done for us. And another guy, Muhammad Kabeda, he was interviewed and they said, well, how do you see yourself now? And he goes, oh, I'm first and foremost an Aussie. Beautiful. Yeah. Then I come from a Lebanese background and I happen to be Muslim by faith. And all of those kids, 10 kids went into the school, which was the worst school in Australia for school violence and reduced all incidences of violence by over 70% in the next 12 months. Huge. That school, Punched by Boys High, for the next decade became statistically one of the safest schools in the nation. And unfortunately, this took to leadership. The principals changed in that time. They had another principal came in who uh, was very dictatorial and autocratic, very disrespectful, didn't appreciate the relationships that had been built with the families, totally disrespected his staff. This kid started seeing this. And two years ago, 2018, or three years ago now, 2018, Punch Club Boys High again made the news for the violent incidences. So yeah. leadership is huge, but identity is, is huge. And we are human beings, not human doings. And so many times you hear guys, you alluded to then, Rob, that you know, we, we associate who we are by what we do. And what's the first converse, first question usually, or first sec, second question that usually pops out of a bloke's mouth when he meets another bloke? So what do you do? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We, we associate our value and worth by what we do. Yeah. It's not who we are. Yeah. And I think our personality, our character is is what we need to, you know, judge people on Martin Luther King said, I have a dream that one day a man will be judged not by the colour of his skin but by the content of his character. Yeah. And character is who you are when no one's looking. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a great – such a great reminder and, and I wanted you to tell that story because – whatever identity you associate yourself with and whatever you think of yourself from that identity point of view doesn't really matter uh, what matters is who you want to become as an individual and how you want to become that person and that's something that i wanted to share with you on the podcast today Brett, tell us a little bit about Safeheart. Give us, give us the, the pitch if you like. What do you guys do? Who do you work with? How can people get involved? What's it all about? Okay, so Safeheart Foundation started off as Make Bullying History Foundation. Obviously, I've alluded to the speaking in schools and doing bullying. But uh, bullying is long-term ongoing violence, threats of violence or antagonisation. And the worst form of bullying is domestic violence. Now, my wife, Teresa, who co-founded Make Bullying History Foundation with me, started Safe Heart, which was our domestic violence arm or domestic violence education and prevention arm because she lost her mum to domestic violence. And we realised over, we've been speaking on this topic in schools and uh, in the marketplace for, well, since 2000, you know, since 2003. Mm. So we're talking about 18 years now, 18, 19 years. And, um, you know, over the time we've done research, we've looked at research, we've conducted our own, and the common denominator in people perpetrating domestic violence in kids being bullies or victims of bullying was the lack of positive male role modelling or men behaving badly or being absent. Mm. And so we as a board 
decided in uh, 2019, 2020, we needed to change our name because we're not just an anti-bullying organisation. We deal with all the issues that stem from that. Things like leadership, things like resilience, things like uh, respect for boys and value for girls and, um, you know, positive um, mindset and all that sort of thing. So, and we also have the education and prevention for domestic violence. So we were beyond just anti-bullying and everyone sort of just put us in that little box of, yeah, you're just an anti-bullying program. No, we're not. We're far more than that. So Teresa said, well, how about we we change the name to Safe Heart because the the catchphrase is we build safe people in safe places. And when you, you know, whether that's family, whether that's in the business sector, uh, whether that's uh, just in society and culture, we want to build safe people who, then become a safe place. So we changed the name to Safe Heart last beginning of last year. And uh, prior to that, I'd been working with men and just realised, hey, look, I need to go to ground zero. I don't want to keep putting a Band-Aid on a bullet hole because absentee fathers or poor fathers are going to continue to either produce kids who are victims of bullying or bullies themselves. Mm. And domestic violence is going to continue unless men change their attitude and change their ways and develop better character. So I decided to go upstream and, you know, bring the two together and work with men. Uh, Teresa is still our uh, key speaker and advocate uh, in in the the domestic violence space. I've decided to really focus my time on men. We still do the anti-bullying. We're partnered with Life Choices Foundation. I do all their anti-bullying speaking for them. We've got online stuff that we do that people can access, but we've really drilled down and focused. So I started a group called Blood Brothers. We talked about having that, you know, those camaraderie, that accountability. Mm -hmm. So meeting with guys on a monthly basis and also that's like for a, a, like a more of official get together to barbecue. But, you know, we, we talk about everything from nutrition and health and family to spirituality. And then we also have a fortnightly coffee catch up where we just get together and just, we make the effort to, to hang out. And then we've started what we call the resistance, which is an annual men's gathering. Uh, we had 30 guys start it in the middle of COVID last year, so limited on numbers. This year, we're going to have 500 men gather in Henty, New South Wales. And it's all about building men of courage, character and conviction. And we, we, we you know, cover things such as leadership. Uh, we cover things such as um, discipline. But we also during the weekend go off and guys who are into motorcycling will go for a ride guys who are into cycling will go for a guys who want to go and watch the local AFL will go guys who want to go and check out agriculture uh, they'll go and see a farm uh, in full swing guys who want to go hiking you know like guys local interest groups or guys of mm. like interest um, like there's even a guy who's uh, one of only 20 people in the world who's a licensed fly fisherman teacher <laughs> yeah right was fly fishing nice. um, like stuff like that so we're going to do life together it's not just pointing fingers saying you're not doing life well and stop it it's and most of the guys that we're targeting we're finding a similar age to you and I sort of you know mid to late 40s guys who think stuff you know I've pretty much blown it the first half of, I've done okay I've got some wins on the board but if life was a, a footy match I'm kind of halfway. It's mm. half time. I'm looking at the scoreboard and I'm in deficit. How the hell do I turn this setback into a comeback? And that's what we want to do. We want to just, as you said, you know, if, if there's life, there's hope. And it doesn't matter how many mistakes you made, your mistakes don't define you just as your job doesn't define you. So we, we're creating this narrative with guys to, that it's, you know, 
we've got to make the effort to hang out with each other, be vulnerable, be open and build each other up. And so Safeheart, uh, has, has, we've got our own website. We've still got the Make Bullying History website, but we're phasing out of that. Uh, Safeheart.tv is the website. We've got uh, the resistancemen.com and .com.au is our uh, men's um, program and, and the, the, all of the stuff that we do with men. And uh, we've got the Facebook pages and, and uh, that sort of thing on social media. But that's what we're focusing on because we know if we can build better men that are safe men that are going to be protectors and providers um, and, you know, be, not just better men as in husbands and fathers, better brothers, better mm. mates, better employers, better employees, yeah. people who treat the people who work for them not like subordinates but treat them with honour, dignity and respect, uh, people who are... Uh, you know, employees work with honor and dignity and respect. They don't rip off time. They're not lazy. Even when no one's looking, they give it their best, you know, character, building character. And I think, you know, the narrative, this crap about toxic masculinity, I think that's the biggest oxymoron there is because true masculinity isn't toxic. Mm. True masculinity is being a man of honor, being a man of integrity, being a, a, a man of his word, well, that, that f- falls into integrity, being a man of strength and courage, of conviction. So if you say you're going to do something, you do it. Mm. You know, a, word, a man's word is his bond. You're not a cheat. You're not looking for the shortcut. You're not looking for the easy way out. And when men are truly being good men, there's nothing toxic about that. And this whole narrative that certain aspects of society are trying to pour on men. Manhood has been, masculinity has been under attack for the last probably 20 years. Miranda Devine in the Daily Telegraph did a brilliant article about three years ago and she was saying, is being male now a crime? Mm. And how men are just automatically, you're a misogynist, you're automatically a sexual predator, you're automatically a cheat, you're automatically a pig. And I'm always putting stuff out there on social media saying, no, men don't cheat, cheaters cheat. Mm. Um, you know, uh, women cheat too. Yeah, uh, <laughs> like, like um, men aren't pigs. Pigs are pigs. Yeah, you know, like people who do that, you can't just tar everyone with the same brush. Mm. But in saying that, these um, ideas and ideals are out there because you know stereotypes are out there because people have acted that way and given fuel to the fire. Yeah. So if men stop being pigs, men stop being chauvinists. 89% of uh, domestic violence cases are men perpetrating violence upon women. Mm. So, you know, it's it, it, we've given people a stick to beat us with as men. Not saying that we're all like that, but generally speaking, wouldn't it be good if you know, men started standing up and saying, you know, a real man doesn't have to raise his fist against a woman no matter what. Yeah. Like no matter what. And, and a lot of guys, oh, but she asked for it, she just nagged or she just swears or she destroyed my surfboard or she set fire to the car. It doesn't mean you got the right to punch her in the face. Mm. Like, that's just that's just gutless. So, you know, I, I'm getting on my soapbox now. But, um, yeah, so we're, we're, I'm passionate about working with men and seeing men find purpose for their life um, beyond just their just – their, uh, you know, their workplace, their, their, their career to find a uh, purpose in their life. Cause what, what we do in life, it, you know, creates history, but what we leave behind is a legacy. Mm. And I want to help men create legacies in their life. You know, what, what do you want to leave behind that carries on? I mean, you know, the stuff that you do, Rob, in, in all these brilliant podcasts, wouldn't it be awesome that, you know, in 50 years time, 
if you're too old or maybe you might be dead by then, <laughs> but you can't do the podcast and who knows what kind of technology we're going to have there, but you've trained people up to continue that on. Yeah, absolutely. And so the electrician podcast or the goal in podcasts are, are being carried on or they're replicated and you've got more people doing it or, or whatever it might be, continually, consistently encouraging people to be the best they, they can be and go all in in life. And yeah. so yeah, just encouraging guys. So that's that's what we're all about, building safe people and safe places, and that just has so many applications. Well, I love the idea of um, getting together and doing activities. You know, it's a well-known fact that uh, women like to go and drink a glass of wine or a cup of coffee and sit around and chat, but men like to get together and go to the footy or go and watch some sport or go and do an activity together. That's how males bond. Women yeah. bond around food and drink and things like that. Men do that too as well, but as a uh, as a... I guess as a generalization and a rule of thumb, guys like to do things together as activities. If I ask my mates to go and, you know, drink a cup of coffee, they kind of look at me funny. They want to go and do something together, you know. Let's go to the gym and train, you know, let's go roll on the mats or something like that. You know, that's a bit more of a fun thing to be doing like that. If people want to get involved in that with you, Brett, what's the best way to do that? Um, probably uh, send me an email uh, either via uh, safeheart.tv or all our, you know, contact us is there yep. or also through the resistancemen.com. Yep. Uh, it's contact us, shoot us an email, ask us all about the information. Uh, and, and that's exactly what you just said, Rob, to put it uh, in a sentence. Women communicate and do life face-to-face. Men do life shoulder-to-shoulder. Yep. Like even if it is around food, we're usually over a barbecue. Yeah, exactly. Uh, one or two blokes will grab the tongs and be in charge and the rest of us will be around telling him how to do it. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> uh, we do, you know, men do things around a cause, around an activity. Uh, it could be over the engine bay of a car. Mm. It could be, like you said, watching footy, going fishing out, surfing, cycling, whatever it is. We're always shoulder to shoulder. If we've got an activity in front of us, we tend to open up beside each other. And um, that's what we do. And yeah, uh, yeah so... It, love the guys to reach out get in contact um and if we can add value uh, any way possible then um then that'd be be unreal awesome well ladies and gentlemen just take a little peek at your phone and all of the links to brett's socials and uh to those websites are right there so you won't have to go digging around in google for them we've organized it so it's nice and simple just have a look at the show notes and it's right there in the link for you right there in the notes for you brett i want to say thanks man thanks for coming and doing another podcast with me we've done a few over the last couple of months it's been a pleasure you're out of lockdown in the northern beaches now it's good where to next Oh mate, well, oh, we got we got a lot of things on, on board. Um, Business wise, it looks like we might be in the in the process of buying an international business. I can't say too much because we're going to be signing a non disclosure agreement, but it looks like a huge business opportunity nice. is opening up for us because uh, your listeners in previous podcasts would know this, but mm. your current listeners don't. That I've got a custom motorcycle business that I run called Murray Brawlers, uh, cafe races and stuff that we build, and uh, we might have. Uh, something that goes along in line with that. Nice. So that's very, very exciting. And then, uh, yeah, our uh, next resistance annual men's gathering is May 28 to 30. So gearing up to, to you know, build that 500 guys coming to that in Henty, New South Wales, which is 45 minutes north of Albury, Wodonga. So we're, we're, we've got a lot of work to do to get that happening. It's, you know, 90% there, but spending a lot of time with that. And we are actually having some schools start to rebook COVID oh, uh, great. stuff lifting for schools so want to get back in the schools and help the kids there so busy and plus I'm, I'm writing a trilogy of books at the moment for men mm-hmm. um, uh, game plan uh, your game plan is the book I'm currently working on then we've got uh, 
Your Second Half, which is the, the sequel to that. And then we've got a, a third book called Ex Nihilo, which means something out of nothing. And um, so there are three books that I'm working on with my uh, publishers, Commander Publishing. And, um, yeah, and we're really, really excited about those. So plenty on. Well, it's all happening. It's good stuff, mate. Really appreciate you coming on the Electrician's Cult podcast here and spending some time with us here today. Wanted to give you the opportunity for the parting comment. Mate, have you got a final piece of wisdom for us today? Oh, mate, I think uh, something that we, we really touched on uh, in line of this conversation is um, your, your past does not define your future. Yeah, beautiful. Well, value bombs left, right and centre here on the show today. Thank you again, Brett. We look forward to speaking with you soon. It's bye for now, mate. Such an honour. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. 